You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Some of the most influential leaders in finance gathered in New York at the Bloomberg Invest Conference for conversations on a wide range of topics, including artificial intelligence, cryptocurrencies, and global trends in wealth management. At the conference, Bloomberg's Shanali Basak spoke with John Waldron, the president and chief operating officer of Goldman Sachs, and got his thoughts on the economy and inflation. Now, you know, we can all agree that when we talk about the economy, there really were too many weather analogies last year being used. And because the actual weather today is really very bad over in New York, the worst air quality in the world we've been experiencing, we don't want to have a conversation about the weather itself. We want to talk about that economy. You told investors a week ago that the macro backdrop is extraordinarily challenging. What are the troubles that you see for the economy ahead? Well, I think that what's most challenging is the cross currents. So you can, you can certainly identify a lot of negative impulses, and a lot of us find ourselves talking you know, into those negative impulses and kind of getting more worried. But there's likewise a lot of positive impulses. And I think the fact that there's all this cross-current, this is the best predicted recession that hasn't happened yet uh, and may not happen. So we're, we're dealing with a lot of cross-currents. In our business, that can tend to make clients sit a little bit more in their hands and be a little bit more muted about their positioning and their activity levels. We obviously have tougher capital markets environment. It hasn't been as robust as we saw coming out of the pandemic recovery period. And so what I'm really reflecting in those comments is more about the activity levels and the cross currents and the, the, the continued debate about will we or will we not have a recession Will we or will we not have rates that stay higher longer, inflation that stays higher longer? And until we get more resolution on that debate, I think we're going to be in a much more challenging period. I can see scenarios where the second half of the year gets a lot better. We obviously got through the debt ceiling. So last week when I was making those comments, we were on the precipice of getting through the debt ceiling. We've gotten through it. That definitely created the the lead up to the debt ceiling debate created a lot of angst and caution in the market for good reasons. We're now through that, so that's, a, that's, a, that's an obstacle that's been moved, moved aside. Now I think really we get back to the primary debate, which is, to me is inflation. When I talk to our clients, whether they're corporate clients or investing clients, the single biggest debate that I hear is how sticky will it be and how much is the Fed or the ECB going to have to do to get it down to you know, its 2% target in the U.S. terms, let's say, or, or you know, thereabouts in, in European terms. And I think that's a very hard question to answer, and I'm not even sure the Fed at this point understands what, where that has to be. And I think that's, that debate is going to persist, and that's going to, it's going to really weigh on sentiment. How much is the consensus that inflation will be higher for longer and therefore rates will be too? Well, I, I hear from corporate clients 
the persistence of inflation in the system. It's felt on the supply side. So whether it's commodity inputs or other supply side inputs, you still feel the supply chain imbalance has, has gotten a lot better. But there's still pretty positive upward bias on pricing in the supply chain. Obviously, wage pressure remains. It's an extremely tight labor market. You know, I often ask myself late at night, can we actually have a recession with 3.5% unemployment? Seems unlikely. Maybe unemployment has to go a lot higher from here. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, but right at the moment, wage and the recent job report was certainly stronger than many of us would have expected. So wage pressure is still there. So if you're running a company, you've got higher wage prices, higher supply prices. You've passed along that price pressure to your customers. The customers have generally absorbed it. I sense at the moment more concern in corporate uh, offices and boardrooms about whether you can continue to price that way and will you have more margin pressure. So there's definitely debate and pressure on margins, which I think is going to be, we haven't really seen that in earnings persistently yet, but I think that's potentially a negative drag on earnings. So that's the CEO sentiment. When you get to the investor sentiment, it's a little bit of a what rate assumptions do we want to make, what inflation assumptions do we want to make, and what growth assumptions do we want to make. If you want to paint a more cautious picture, you would say we might have a mini stagflationary scenario. It might not be massive stagflation, but if you have sluggish growth, 1% plus minus growth, and inflation doesn't really get down below 3%, and rates have to stay 3 plus percent for a while, that's not going to feel, it's not going to be called a recession, but it's not going to feel great, and activity levels will be more challenged. That's the scenario we kind of plan for and worry about because that's a scenario that could persist for a while where you just get sluggish growth. I think we need better growth. We need more productivity. And there are impetus, there, there are impulses that could provide that. I think, you know, I'm sure you'll want to talk about AI. Generative AI is a potential positive productivity boom. I think a lot of the, a lot of what's going on in science, life sciences, and the investment and the progress that's being made, there's, there's plenty of innovation that we could point to and say there's an enormous opportunity to have like another industrial revolution. It just might be more of a digital revolution and a science revolution. That could unleash a lot of productivity, but we need something to get more growth in the economy that will allow us to deal with some of the challenges we're going to face. Now, that's a very robust backdrop to look at a different range of scenarios, both for CEOs and for investors. What does it mean about the risk appetite that your clients and you are taking on? I would say for our clients, risk appetite is lower. Um, it was very, very low leading into the debt ceiling. If you're talking about more investor risk appetite for a moment, it was very low leading into the debt ceiling debate. The last handful of days has been better. You can see some risk appetite creeping back into the marketplace. Um, but I'd say, generally speaking, it's still a lower risk appetite than we would have seen, you know, certainly in 21 and into the first half of 2022, for good reason, because these cross-currents are complex. Uh, it's not clear anybody wants to make a very declarative set of uh, risk judgments at this moment. So lower risk appetite. And I think CEOs are cautious. You can see it in business spend. You know, we're, we're, if we're not in a business investment recession, we're sort of on the precipice of it, I think. You're seeing decline in business investment. Um, but on the consumer side, the consumer is quite resilient. So consumer demand, which is 70% or so of the U.S. economy, remains pretty strong. So we don't have a recession because the consumer is really maintaining that strength. So I think risk appetite is going to maintain a more muted positioning until there's more resolution of some of those debates. So what does this mean for things that are under the hood? We have kind of a joke among my colleagues that we're really tired of worrying. <laughs> I think a lot of investors probably feel that way. However, it's the job of a risk manager to do it. So if you look under the hood, what are the biggest concerns that are under the surface? Well, we worry about everything all the time. That is our job. Um, and you know, as I said last week, we're running the firm tighter. 
we're being more cautious. Uh, if we get that sort of more sluggish growth, higher inflation scenario, we, in studying what has happened in those types of scenarios, you can see you generally get less economic activity. Uh, and you get a reduction in purchasing power capability for the consumer, and so that does have flow-through effects. And that'll obviously impact our industry and our, and our business. So we're planning for that scenario to be more likely. Doesn't mean it will happen, but we want to plan for it. And if it, if it breaks to the upside, we can flex into the upside. So we've done some work on our headcount uh, for, for all the obvious reasons, to right-size the firm for the opportunity that we see in front of us. We've learned that we're pretty capable of flexing into better upward-sloping opportunities, and so we're confident that we can do that. Um, and I think our clients are running ma many of the same place. You know, I, I, we haven't seen mass layoffs, but you're starting to see people reduce headcount you know, here and there, and you're certainly seeing reduced business investment. And so I think that'll be, that'll be the general posture. I, I still come back to the combination of inflation and geopolitics as two big areas that we have to get a little bit of a better understanding of where, where is the real direction of travel. How, how persistent will the inflation be? And what is the impact of the war in Ukraine, the broader relationship between the US and China? And does that have more economic, does that weigh more on the economy, either by virtue of higher energy prices um, or you know, more uh, rebalancing of global trade, rebalancing the supply chains? And what is the ultimate impact of that on economic growth? I'm glad you brought up Goldman's reduction in force because Goldman's on its third round of job cuts in less than a year. Uh, and given the macro backdrop that you just outlined, can you say with certainty that this would be the last set of job cuts in the next year or so? I, I can't say anything with certainty because I think those cross currents are, are persistent and we have to see. It's, it's equally likely that we would flex into an upward sloping environment as it is that we would have to flex downward further. So I think it's hard, it's hard to really know at this point. Our job is to right size our firm's resources whether it's capital uh, or financial resources or, or talent and people resources for the opportunity we see in front of us. And we think the moves that we're making right now are getting us to a place where we're really better, better sized for the opportunity we see in front of us. So let's talk about Goldman's strategy. I mean, it's been a very highly watched kind of pivot here that you've been making uh, into the consumer, then changes in consumer, and then uh, doubling down on asset and wealth. When do you think, what will it take for investors to start rewarding you for those changes? So our job is to run the firm the best we can, and the investors will decide you know, how they want to value what we're doing. But I, I would say a couple things. First, we have two very big, very scaled businesses that we feel great about. One, global banking and markets, which is a $30 billion plus minus revenue business that generates mid-teens returns, that is a leading client franchise all over the world in banking type activities and in market type activities. And we've increasingly run that business in an integrated fashion, particularly focused on financing our clients, where we think there's an enormous opportunity. We, we talked about the environment. One of the things I didn't say that I probably should have said, and we feel strongly, the financing environment in the, in the economy is going to get tougher. It's gonna to be higher cost to finance. It's gonna be less available than it was. Financing was quite plentiful. It's gonna get more complicated. Goldman Sachs is very well positioned to be a more prominent financier for our clients. And by running the global banking and markets businesses now in an integrated fashion, we think we're bringing all that intellectual capital and throw weight together to be more valuable to our clients. So we love that business. We think that business is going to continue to produce mid-teens returns through the cycle. And there's obviously growth and opportunity for us to continue to take share. We've proven we can take share. The second primary scale business in the firm, as you said, is called asset and wealth management. That is a business that is, is an aggregation of a bunch of businesses that we had inside the firm that we've now brought together into an integrated platform. 
it's really three primary components. There's a liquid active asset manager with $2.7 trillion of assets under supervision on that platform. Top five active asset manager in the world, very global, runs the gamut from a product solution standpoint, from cash and money markets through fixed income, fundamental equity, quant, and all the way through to the riskier end of the spectrum. So it's a fully integrated, fully scaled platform. We have a top five alternatives asset manager with $450 billion or so of alternatives assets, which also is a hugely fully scaled platform, very global. Uh, and then we have a wealth management business, which focuses primarily on the ultra high net worth segment, which are the wealthiest individuals and families in the world. That business has a trillion dollars of client assets on the platform. Uh, it focuses on, as I said, the wealthier families, but we're only an 8% share in the Americas, if you take the Americas broadly as a, as a category. So there's a lot of fragmentation in that marketplace. We've been at that a long time. We continue to grow that business mid to high single digits, and we think there's an enormous amount of runway there. We also think there's a lot of runway internationally in Europe and Asia as we continue to build our platform globally. So those three businesses now run on one integrated platform. We're spending a lot of time in terms of tech transformation to build a more unified chassis, as I would call it, that underpins uh, those three businesses. So we have, we have a scaled institutional client base. We have a scaled wealth management client base. We have public market capability. We have private market capability. And we have an integrated platform that is increasingly tech forward and much more digital and much more scalable. And so that, that business for us is under transformation. We have historically pursued the alternatives business with more of our own capital in a more merchant banking oriented fashion. So Goldman Sachs, unlike a Blackstone or a KKR, would have had a lot more of our own balance sheet invested in our alternatives assets. We have, over the last four years, transitioned that balance sheet from 60 plus billion dollars of historical principal investments on the balance sheet to less than $30 billion on the balance sheet. And we've stated a goal to get it down below $15 billion by the end of 2024 and to zero in the intermediate term, and we'll end up with $20 billion or so of co-investment in our funds. So every dollar we have on the platform from our balance sheet will be aligned 100% co-invested in the funds with our clients. That is a very unique scaled platform that we have to make work and we have to prove the synergy in the context of that business, but that is also a business that we think can be a mid-teens business through the cycle. So Goldman Sachs, in a handful of years, is going to have a mid-teens global banking and markets business and a mid-teens asset and wealth management business at scale with a lot of growth opportunity where we're going to be more management fee intensive than we have been, much less balance sheet, much more balance sheet light, with an enormous opportunity to grow a great brand, a globally scaled business, and, and a lot of talent. And so that is the story of Goldman Sachs, and we've got to now go execute on that. What does this mean? Because you just kind of highlighted one part of Goldman Sachs looks a lot like KKR and Apollo, just one part, right? And so how big does that alternative asset manager get within Goldman Sachs? And how does it fit with the other businesses, for example, with investment banking, with those folks being some of your biggest clients? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, I have watched the growth of alternative assets with um, you know, with awe, frankly, and over the, I've been, I've spent a lot of my career in and around alternative assets. I was doing private equity deals for those companies and other clients of the firm, you know, 20 some years ago. The, the scale of these firms is extraordinary and they continue to grow and take share, if you will, of the, of the asset aggregation in the world. And I don't see why that will change. I think that will continue. The growth rate might moderate a little bit. It's a little tougher fundraising environment today than it would have been a handful of years ago. 
but I think more clients want access to the, the aggregate return and the alpha opportunity in private assets. And private assets obviously runs the gamut from private equity to credit to infrastructure, growth, et cetera. And so we, Goldman Sachs for 30 years has been a leader in this business. We have just done it a little differently than, than would be the traditional private equity firms that have done it mostly with third-party funds. We've done it with our own, our own capital. As I said, we're transitioning that. But we've got a few unique attributes. As you said, we have the largest investment bank and I think the leading investment bank in the world. That provides an enormous sourcing engine. We're sourcing transactions and ideas and introductions to CEOs and so forth for our clients and for our own team. And we're doing, I think, a very good job partnering with our clients. So the firms you mentioned and other firms, I could run off a litany of transactions where we've partnered with them, or we have an idea, we bring it to them and say, why don't you guys invest with us and we'll prosecute the idea together. So we found a symbiotic relationship in the context of, of running this strategy. Our business with those firms, I think, has gotten better as we pursued the strategy, but it takes, it takes a, a focus on partnering, doing what's right for our clients, and we can benefit along the, along the way in that context, but it's gotta come from the clients first. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's talk about talent for a moment here, because with James Gorman and Morgan Stanley saying he'll step down in a year, there's been a lot of focus on succession at Wall Street. David Solomon has been in the position for five years now. Uh, the question here, and, and frankly, you're the most clear successor. And so how long is David's tenure expected to be? And how are you thinking about building the bench even deeper at Goldman, especially with such high profile turnover, not just at Goldman, but in all of Wall Street? Well, I'd say the following. CEO succession is not something I spend a lot of time on. I have a lot to do. I just outlined all the things we have, we, 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 we have to do. We, we, I, my job is to execute with our team, execute that strategy. So, so my days are full executing that strategy. We do spend a lot of time on succession below, let's say, the, the CEO or president or CFO level. I spend a lot of time running succession processes for our, for our people below that level. And I think we've done a, a better job in the last four or five years really trying to build a deeper succession pipeline and giving our talent, which I think is extraordinary, more opportunities to grow and develop, to move around, to get new job opportunities, new stretch assignments, and to continue to position them to be able to ascend to the kind of jobs that, that David and I sit in. And we have an extraordinary bench, but our job is to not just look at the bench and say, wow, it's really great. Our job is to work on that bench and that talent and that strength and do the right things to develop them. So that's, that's what occupies my time and attention as it, as it relates to succession. Uh, earlier in the conversation, you kind of talked about the potential for investment in AI and technology. Goldman was really at the forefront of really automating a lot of businesses. I remember Lloyd Blankbein once speaking at a conference about automating equities to the point of bringing a 500 trading 500 person trading desk to one 
Uh, are you working on using AI to further automate some of the more difficult areas like fixed income trading or investment banking? So we've been using AI for a while. And as you, as you, as you really point out to Lloyd's comments, our firm, I think, has been very forward-leaning on technology for a long time. And there's been lots of different developments and innovations that we've tried to you know, be adaptive to. And I think we're generally speaking a leader in technology. We're not the only one, but we generally try to be pretty front-footed. And I think it's been very important for Goldman Sachs to continually find ways to use technology to advance our ability to serve our clients and also to make our firm more efficient. And generative AI, when I think, you know, you say AI, we've been using AI. The, new, the real new development here are these large language models, the power and strength of these large language models and what they can do. And so when we think about generative AI, we really start, first of all, with let's build a governance standard and, and capability inside the firm so that when we do things with respect to generative AI, they're done in a way that we're very, very comfortable with because I think governance is going to be critical. And then the second thing is to develop use cases that are valuable, interesting use cases for us to start to explore how we can use the generative AI to, to suit an objective. And I would put the use cases in two buckets. One is more efficiency, automation, process reengineering inside the firm to make us more efficient, to do things that are very human-centric, um, to take things that are very human-centric and make them more automated and use some of the capability and power of the computing to, to simplify and, and make the processes more durable, more resilient, and better. The second bucket is really how can we serve our clients better and develop intellectual content and, and judgment on top of that intellectual content that can be more powerful and more valuable. And so we're looking at both. And we're starting to really test in a very safe, governed way uh, some of these use cases and developing uh, our strategy forward. It's very early. We're, I'd say, quite early in the testing process. I don't exactly know where this is going to go. I don't know how much money we're all going to spend. I don't know who the leaders are going to be. But we're, we're, we're spending an enormous amount of time talking to the obvious players out there to find ways to partner, to be a thought leader, and, uh, and to start to figure this out. But I, I can't stress enough how early it is and how important the governance standards are. I think those two, those two things sometimes get lost in the, in the debate about how fast this is going to move. Well, that implies that there's something you're also worried about when it comes to AI. It sounds like there are real risks as you're trying to integrate it. What, do you, what is the big concern? Well, you have to control your data. You know, I think what's really important, if you think about Goldman Sachs, we're an intellectual capital company. That's the, we, we are an intellectual capital-led company. That's, that's, our, that's part of our raison d'etre. And we produce a lot of content and a lot of data. And so you want to make sure that you have that data uh, under your jurisdiction and that you understand how it's being used and how it's being governed and where it's going. Uh, and I think just broadly governance standards. You know, I think when you, when you listen to the power of these large language models and what they can do, making sure that you have standards where you're really governing the use of them, I think is quite important. And I, I think before people run too fast, we just have to make sure that we've got the right governance standards around that. Uh, it, it would be a mistake to not ask you about whether and this is back to the macro environment now, because we have just got out of, you can call it a banking crisis, you can call it whatever you want. I mean, but the reality is, is it's been a string of bank failures in the United States. Do you think that there is more trouble ahead for the financial system? I think the financial system in the United States is very strong and, I, and very resilient. Uh, and I think you have to separate you know, a, a handful of bank failures um, on the back of a significant shift in interest rate policy and, and a shift in the you know, dynamic between deposits and assets and the kind of net interest margin um, you know, that lives between deposits and assets and the overall banking system. So I, I, I think 
part of the problem of raising rates that fast, that, that quickly and that, and that far, is you do risk uh, impacting elements of the financial system. And I think we've seen that there are things that can, that can stress. But that doesn't mean that the banking system and the financial system aren't really strong. I think they're really strong. I think right at the moment we're seeing in the regional banking model, it's, it's going to be harder to generate that same NIM with a new interest rate paradigm. And if we have a harder, a tougher economy, if we have a harder landing in the economy, then you might see some challenges on the asset side. We haven't seen that yet. I, I hope we don't see that. But I think we have to worry about that and prepare for that. But that's different than saying we have a financial crisis or we have, we have challenges in the financial system. I think the financial system is extraordinarily strong. It's well capitalized. There certainly can be places where you can put more capital in the system and be more measured on the regulatory side. But as it relates to the larger banks, certainly coming out of the financial crisis of, of 08 and the Dodd-Frank legislation and the new capitalization of, our, of, our, of the GCIFIs in the, in the world, very, very strong, very, very resilient. Will more banks fail, though, on the smaller end? I don't, I don't expect to see significant failures. I think you're going to just see more regulation, probably more capital needed, needed in the system, more capital that has to get raised in the system, um, and for a period of time, tougher, a tougher earnings environment until we get more resolution on where rates settle out and where economic growth is and where economic activity is. And besides even the banking crisis you saw in the United States, you also just recently also had the LDI crisis in the UK as well. When you think about kind of the overall markets across the globe, are there kind of pockets of leverage that you still worry about given this prolonged rise in risk? Well, I think to the point of the LDI crisis, um, you know, government debt broadly is a concern because if you think, what did we just, we just had a pandemic. It was a hundred year event. And how did we get out of the pandemic? The governments had to stimulate demand out of the pandemic, which means the governments had to spend and borrow and put debt on the government balance sheets to try to bring the patient back to life. And generally speaking, that worked. We could debate whether there was too much stimulus, too much spend, but what happened is a lot of that debt transferred onto government balance sheets. And so, and now because we have higher interest rates, the cost and the burden of that debt is more expensive. It could crowd out other investing. So one of the things we worry about is just the fiscal picture around the world in terms of the amount of government debt and the burden of the interest now on that debt and the other areas of spend that we need in the, in the world. You can imagine more military spend, you could imagine more spend on climate, and you could imagine more spend in terms of industrialized policy to, to build more competitiveness and to deal with supply chain rebalancing. So, and obviously there's an enormous amount of social spend. So there's a lot of pressure on fiscal spend, I think everywhere in the world, and it's less helpful when you've got a four or 5% interest rate than when you have a zero, one or 2% interest rate. And so those, those burdens and that crowding out effect, I think is gonna be more, you know, more in the frame as we, as we turn the clock forward. I remember you in a conversation with Ken Griffin a couple of years ago, before COVID even hit, that you said this was one of your biggest concerns and the concern is now amplified because of COVID, as you were saying. What's the investor implication? I think the problem with this conversation typically, and we started this way with Stan Druckenmiller yesterday as well, is that it feels so far out on the horizon that people don't pay attention to it. Well, I think the crisis could be fraught on the horizon, but the challenges are here and now. And I, I think the big challenges are gonna be debates. And, we, and this was the debt ceiling debate. It might not have been fully framed this way, but the debt ceiling debate is a spending debate. And obviously there was a, there was a contingency that wanted less spending and a contingency that wanted you know, more spending or neutral spending. And we ended up with kind of neutral spending-ish. 
that, that's a mini debate on what's going to be a much longer uh, discussion, I think. And I, maybe the 2024 election in the U.S. will bring that more into the frame. Maybe that will be a debate in the European circles. But the pressure on spending in the, in the economy, I think, is going to be significant. I mean, we talked about sluggish growth. One way to create more growth is to find ways to stimulate. There will be political pressure, I think, to stimulate. Because if we end up with, whether we have a recession or we just have sluggish growth, it's going to be slower growth than everybody wants vis-a-vis the spending pressures and the things we have to achieve to deal with some of these challenges. So I, I just, I don't know that I'm, I'm not predicting a crisis. Um, and I don't think that we're going to have a government funding crisis anytime soon. But I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure. And I think that, unfortunately, because now we're living in a different interest rate regime, and I think we're going to be living there for a while, the interest part of the conversation is more complex. It was much easier to finance this you know, kind of government spending initiative when you were doing it with very, very low rates. Now it's a little bit more challenging, and that, that is gonna, that's going to that's gonna create more of a debate, I think, in the, uh, in the dialogue. Interest spending alone being almost higher than defense spending very soon from now. But, so one more question before I let you go, because you've hinted at it, the, the, the attention moving very quickly from the monetary to the fiscal, especially as we head into 2024. Uh, there are a lot of candidates uh, kind of putting their hand up when you look at the Republican Party in particular. Uh, and I'm wondering, how does Goldman prepare for potential changes in 2024 of a potential change in guard or even, uh, you know, a, a, a stark shift in kind of forces even in the Republican Party alone? Well, we, we tend to focus on policy and policy implications. And obviously, elections have consequences and whoever, whichever party is in the executive branch, you know, gets to, gets to set an agenda and pursue an agenda. Um, and so we tend to focus on what would the policy differentials be depending on which party you think will, will reside. We tend not to focus as much on the individuals. We, you know, we support both parties. We're very active in, on both sides of the aisle and, and believe that it's important that both parties uh, are successful. And I frankly think important that they work together. And I, you know, I, I think it was great that we got the debt ceiling um, resolved. It's a, it's a good example of where you can get a deal done between the two parties. I think there are examples. There was an infrastructure bill done. The IRA was done. There are things that can be done between the two parties that are, that are important for the country. Um, but policy implications will be significant. So, you know, whether it's tax policy, regulatory policy, fiscal policy, foreign policy, uh, industrialized policy, how we deal with China, there's plenty that you could debate uh, as between the two parties. And I think that the 24 election will crystallize a lot of those debates, and we will be working on our side to, you know, to be engaged in that discussion, because I think it's important for us to be engaged, but also to be planning. You know, if you go a certain direction, that might set a certain course vis-a-vis the economy, a d- different direction might set another course. And so we're, we're pretty obsessive planners about looking at scenarios and trying to make sure that we're prepared for, for all, all possible conditions. That's John Waldron, the president and chief operating officer of Goldman Sachs, speaking at the Bloomberg Invest Conference with our Shanali Basik. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Bloomberg Talks podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.